Welcome to the Antidote One Podcast with Chris Colby. Did you know that you have a choice in life? Be average. Or live to your full potential. We believe living to your full potential is the antidote to living an average life. You're about to hear from real people doing just that. Ready to change your life? Chris? Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? Good, good. What's new and exciting in your world? Another day. <laughs> Another day. Another day. Background seems a little bright here, huh? Yeah, uh, it's, it speaks to your character, man. <laughs> Not so much. I like yours, though. Good. Thanks. Thanks. So um, I'll probably do a quick intro and then we'll just get into it like we like we did before. Perfect. Sounds great. Keep it, keep it simple. So um, let's see. If, there we go. All right. Great. So um, I have with me today, Brian Sullivan of Sullivan Engineering. Um, Brian's firm is uh, on the Inks 5000 list for the fourth year in a row and also uh, a hot firm, a great place to work for also the fourth year in a row. Um, we'll get into Brian's business in a little bit. Um, you can give us the particular details, but you have offices in the belly of the beast in New York City, New Jersey, Boston, Alabama, and Arizona, if I remember all that correctly. Very good, Chris. Very good. So, um, but yeah, I want to get into core values of your business, but I think also, um, you know, just as importantly, the family side of things, uh, you have six children, which I find that's double what I have. So that's amazing. Uh, I don't know how you, you and Mary Jo handle that. And uh, also want to make sure we don't forget about your wife, Mary Jo, because uh, this is definitely a team sport running a business. So um, with that, um, why don't you start uh, back at the beginning of uh, maybe not the beginning, beginning of being born, but uh, growing up, you know, how, how, what was family life like? Uh, what were the fundamentals of, you know, you as a person that formed you to become, you know, where you're at today? Thanks, Chris. I appreciate this opportunity. Um, yeah, I grew up in Queens. Uh, my parents were both uh, immigrants from Ireland. Uh, I had two older sisters, so I was the baby boy in an Irish household, which means uh, I got my way pretty much all the time. Um, <laughs> But, you know, my parents were the typical, typical um, immigrants, you know, hardworking, uh, put in lots of time. My dad worked for Con Ed. My mom worked for the public schools. Uh, my dad took every overtime opportunity he possibly could, uh, but somehow managed to coach baseball, which to me is amazing, a sport he never played in his life. He learned uh, how to play it so that he could coach, uh, which says so much about uh, the man that he is, the parents that my parents were. Um, had two older sisters. Faith was, was big in our house. Uh, hard work was big in our house. And family was huge. Um, I remember a lot of little vacations we went on up to the Catskills when we were kids. And, uh, you know, and that really just kind of resonated throughout who we were. They were passionate on us uh, getting a good education, something, um, you know, that they had a good education in their early years, but higher education wasn't available to them in Ireland. And so they were passionate about all of uh, me and my sisters going to college and, uh, you know, doing well beyond that. So that was a big emphasis for them. Um, I went to Manhattan College. I know my dad was excited about that when we went to look at it because he recognized a lot of the pubs uh, that were up near Gaelic Park. When he came here, he used to play Irish football in a park right near, right in Riverdale, right near uh, Manhattan College. And uh, so I think uh, he got to live vicariously through me and, and I got to live vicariously through him, uh, vice versa, uh, both reliving glory days, I guess. Uh, yeah. So that was a lot of fun. It was good. Um, and, you know, that's kind of where we got our work ethic and our faith and uh, our focus on family. Yeah, so it's interesting. I, it sounds like um, your dad had a, a bit of a, you know, shaping of your life being at, you know, working at Con Ed. You, did that play into the choice to become an engineer? Yeah, 100%. Uh, although he didn't have the formal uh, degree for an engineer, a lot of the works he did in the gas turbines uh, were similar to engineering. And, um, you know, he spoke a lot, uh, the CEO of um, 
uh, Con Ed at that time when I was in high school, uh, was a Manhattan College alum. A lot of the people high up there were alums and, and he had definitely had an engineer's mindset for sure. Uh, so a lot of that kind of attracted me towards the field of engineering. Uh, that plus I was, as they always say for high school students, if you're good in science and math, you should go for engineering, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I had the, the combo. Yeah, yeah, good. So I think, you know, when we talked before, you mentioned something to me and I didn't pick up on this um, uh, when, we were, when we were chatting before, but you classified, you know, I was joking around with you. I said, oh, you grew up with a silver spoon in your mouth and all these things and everything was given to you, right? And obviously that's not the case, but um, uh, we were trying to classify what it was like growing up in Queens and being, you know, a, a child of uh, two immigrant parents. And you said working class. And I don't think that term is used that much anymore. You know, we would probably call it maybe equivalent to a middle class today. But working class has, to me, has a different um, connotation to it. And I think, you know, that that's, you know, I, from what I know of you, you're a really hard worker. And I think your parents instilled that in you. And, and maybe that that's where that term came from uh, for you is working class as opposed to middle class. Do you feel there's a difference there? You know, it is interesting. And I guess, you know, I do, I do use that term. Um, and, you know, all of us are working, right, regardless of, of where we are uh, mm -hmm. in it. But I think it's just that working mindset just resonated with me. And, and uh, when I was younger, a lot of people would talk about lower middle class and middle class and upper middle class. And um, I just, that never stuck with me. I didn't really like those definitions of it. Um, and I just, when I think of my parents, I think of how hardworking they were. When I think of my aunts and uncles, how hardworking they were, their friends, uh, the kids I went to school with, their parents, you know, they just, they just all work really hard. And I think that's why working class stuck with me more than anything. Yeah. Um, yeah. I like that term. I, I think it doesn't describe somebody financially, it describes a mindset. And, uh, you know, I think middle-class can depending on you know the way it's used socially can you know mean something else to somebody like I said lower middle class upper middle class so I I like that I had that in my notes so I, I just thought I should bring that up <laughs> perfect thanks Chris yeah no it's um it, I think it's important um work work is not something that uh, hard work anyway is something that's not really um talked about today and that maybe in a in a loving way so um but i think all successful people have hard hard work ethic behind them uh in order to get to where they're at um so uh you know growing up queens pro you know working class neighborhood um you mentioned at one point during our conversation you you know while you didn't grow up like super filthy rich or anything like that you always had this idea instilled in your head from your parents to give so I, I don't know if you can talk about that a little bit I think um, as we get into this interview a little bit later and to see how you've done that as as an adult too but it, this giving spirit I've, I've known you a little while now and um, I you know you're, every time I talk to you, I always feel better. So I, you have like this, you described yourself before as this uh, realistic, uh, you, know, you know, opportunistic type of person, right? Um, and I think that that comes out of you, that exudes from you. Uh, I always feel better talking to you. So this is a selfish interview, but. Um, <laughs> Likewise, Chris. <laughs> I think, you know, Talk about giving, how, how your parents instilled that, maybe even when they didn't have a lot to give and what that meant to you and how, how that translates to, to today. Yeah, you know, as a kid, I, I remember, and it's funny the stuff you pick up on as a kid, right? And, and what you remember from those days. But I remember, um, you know, one of the responsibilities my mom would give me was to do some of the shop. And she would send me to the store with this list to do the shopping and a stack of coupons. And, you know, trying to, trying to save. And it was 15 cents off of this, 25 cents off of that, 30 cents on this. And I might do that on a Saturday. It was often the days that, that I'd go shopping or I'd go shopping with her and she'd have this stack of coupons. And then the next day we'd go to church and they, one of the little things they did was they would have me or my sisters or me and my sisters put the envelope in the basket at church. And yeah. I distinctly remember looking at, you know, what they put on the envelope or what they put in the check. And then they would write on the outside of the envelope and thinking about, how much, how many coupons we had the day before to try to save to make sure we could afford what we had. And, and uh, my parents weren't wealthy by any stretch, right? They, they worked hard to have what they have, but we didn't want for anything as kids. There wasn't anything that we were missing in our lives that we felt we needed. 
Um, so it just always struck me back then that like here we were one day, you know, trying to trying to make sure we could get what we needed to have lunch for school and, you know, a good meal. Uh, but then, the, you know, at church, uh, writing a sizable check or if we had family coming over from Ireland, our house was always open and me and my siblings would be me and my sisters would be sharing a bedroom so that somebody could stay with us for a month, two months to get their feet on the ground. Um, and, and they gave in a lot of different ways or just general generosity. Certainly, uh, you know, I think all immigrants are known for this, but um, whenever someone from their uh, their home country uh, is struggling, is going through something, they're so generous to give. Um, really, and, and do work and, and help out and cooperate. And I think that's something I saw so early on uh, that just resonated through, um, through me. And uh, my wife shares the same values from her parents. And uh, it's what we're trying to instill in our kids now. Yeah, great. Yeah, it's, it's so important today. Um, so let's talk a little bit about you and your wife. Uh, you both uh, during college, um, and this will lead into your, your current large family by today's means. Um, Maybe that's an Irish thing. I don't know. <laughs> um, uh, during college, you both, uh, you and your wife, uh, did missionary work. Where, did you guys go to college together or separate colleges? We did not. So we grew up on the same street, uh, but I was, uh, I looked like Ralphie from A Christmas Carol. So I had to grow out of that before we started dating in our mid-20s. But we were always uh, really close friends and our families were really close. So we grew up on the same street in Queens. But I went to Manhattan College in the Bronx. She went to Malloy on Long Island. Um, and I think what you were talking about was the mission trips where yes. I went to Honduras twice with Manhattan College um, to do some work down there, some volunteer work and build some houses. And we, we played at some orphanages at night with the kids and got to know some of the kids there. And then my wife studied nursing. And after graduating from Malloy, went to Haiti for a year uh, to volunteer in a hospital. Um, and then on weekends and uh, things like that, she would uh, jump uh, in a taxi and go out to some of the orphanages and spend some time in the orphanages uh, in Haiti, which was for both of us, just, just life-changing uh, experiences for both of us, to say the least, to put it mildly. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Um, so that, I mean, that really is part of, you know, the other part of that question is, you know, how your, your fam you know, family grew to the size that it is now. You have um, six children, two of which you've adopted, one from Haiti, uh, Grace and um, Finn from China. Um, talk about those experiences. I, I find this uh, one amazingly generous, which I think, again, goes back to, you know, how your parents raised you. Um, but most people with four kids wouldn't go out and adopt two more, um, especially, uh, you know, with everything going on in the world today, uh, cost-wise and whatnot. Um, talk, talk about your experience um, with uh, both Finn and, and Grace, if you don't mind, uh, just why, um, and then a little bit how that process looked. I don't think um, many people know what an adoption process looks like, and then the joy it brings to both you as a a family and, and the child that you're adopting. Yeah, um, I love talking about this. So you'll have to put some time constraints on me. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, back when I was in Honduras, I remember, you know, I was a junior in college and I met this little girl, Sarayi Reese. And as we speak about her, as I mentioned her name, I can still see her face and I can still just absolutely gorgeous. And uh, just fell in love with this little girl and the love that she had to give, although she lived in an orphanage in Honduras, with no possessions of her own, the love she had to give was just unbelievable and changed my heart. Uh, and when I went back six months later um, and saw her again, she remembered me. Uh, and I could not believe that a six-year-old girl could remember this guy that she saw six months ago for uh, two weeks. Um, and there's a lot more we could talk about there, but she just instilled in me this, this passion for it. So fast forward to when my wife and I started dating. And when you date someone you've known for 25 years, you pretty much know you're going to get married before you start dating uh, or you're not taking that risk. And uh, so on our second date, I asked her if she would ever be up for adopting internationally. And uh, she said she would love to. Right. And I thought she probably would. I know her heart and I know her experience. Um, so we always said, if God blessed us with kids biologically, then we would adopt after that fact. If we weren't blessed with kids biologically, we'd start the adoption process right away. So we had four kids biologically. Uh, and then as soon as our fourth uh, son, our fourth child of two boys, two girls uh, biologically, as soon as Dolan was born, we started the process for adoption um, and found our way uh, through the organization, kind of identifying which countries you're available for, which countries have the most need. Um, and we found our way through the into the China uh, process. 
Uh, we were in um, Ethiopia for a little bit, um, the Democratic Republic of Congo for a little bit when they both closed international adoption. So that's how we kind of found ourselves in China, uh, or I should say God directed us to China. Yeah. Um, we were up for adopting um, what they define as special needs children. Um, but the interesting thing is you go through the adoption process, all the training they give you, all the information they give you, what's defined as special needs in other countries is very easy to solve here in the United States. We're so blessed with what we have here uh, that, again, what is pretty easy to address here is, is to find a special needs there. So when we saw our, our son, uh, Finn, on a waiting child list um, in China, we immediately knew that's our son. He just happens to be living in China right now. Uh, that's our son. We applied for the adoption. Uh, we were approved. Um, so we had done all the upfront paperwork, which took take, <coughs> took, which took about a year. Uh, and uh, you know they have to do all background checks. Uh, you know addresses that I never remembered I had. They found and did background checks, which is fantastic. It's what you want. Yeah. Um, right. We had to do an immense amount of training, which I think if they had people do that amount of training before. They had kids biologically. We'd probably about half the population we have right now um, because they want to prep you and, and make sure you're ready, right? And uh, which is great, uh, is phenomenal. So we had done all of that work. We did about a year um, in the application process up front. Then we're in Ethiopia and the Congo for about a year before we went to China. So in January of 2015, we found ourselves uh, and we identified Finn. February, we were matched with Finn. And then November of that year, we went to China uh, the six of us at the time, myself, Mary Jo, and the four kids went to China uh, and brought Finn home, which was amazing. Amazing. A year in the application process before you're even able to start to identify that, hey, this is Finn. He, we, we want Finn, right? Wow. Uh, a year. Now, in, in fairness, uh, I don't think we could have done it much faster. And I say we loosely because my wife filled out most of the paperwork. But we were doing that while we had four kids, uh, right? So you could probably do some of that faster. They sent us some forms. We had to turn around and get them back. Maybe it could have taken a week and it took three weeks, right, to get some of those things back. So it could be a little faster, but it's, it's pretty close to a year. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's a pretty amazing. So what were your kids when you guys as a family go to China? Uh, how, how did your kids handle that? I mean, that's a completely different culture uh, process um, going there, you know, meeting Finn. Uh, how how did your kids react to that? They were fully on board. They were so excited. Uh, you know, kids are kids, and, and it's as the parents present things to them, it's kind of how they'll um, adapt to it. So yeah. uh, we were very excited about it. We were passionate. It was all good, good, good. This is exciting. Uh, we're going to go to China. Um, so they were really excited about the trip. They were, super, you know, obviously those four kids are ready. So they're used to having, you know, every yeah. two years, there's one more added to the clan. Um, so they were excited about having another, another family member, um, bringing them with us was huge, um, yeah. for our son, Finn, you know, we walked into the orphanage and, and they were excited to see him. He was obviously, you know, crying hysterically, right? He was two and a half years old. Uh, yeah. he probably had never seen Caucasian people before in his life, yeah. uh, living inside the orphanage he was in. And all of a sudden he's in a room with, with six of them. Um, yeah. but because we had the kids with him the transformation was that day. Yeah. He went from being terrified of us and, and crying when he first saw us to that night eating KFC and French fries and running around the hotel room with them. Um, and it's been, you know, they've been siblings ever since. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. awesome. Yeah, I see some of the pictures of your kids on Facebook and they're like, they're just tight. Like you can tell, they're just part of the gang now, right? Like it's, it's There's no differentiation. They have no... Yeah, there's no differentiation between biological and, and uh, adopted. It's it's phenomenal. Kids are amazing. Yeah, that's that's awesome. So, so I gotta ask about China because there's China's been in the news lately. So, what was you know politically? Was there any anything that you had to deal with going there? Is is the communism side of China good, bad, and different? Did you experience any of that? Was it or just you went in, you did what you had to do, and you're you're back out? We went in, uh, did what we had to do. We were given tours. Um, you know, we went to uh, Tiananmen Square. We went to the Great Wall of China, you know, because we had time to kill. Um, what I will say is that um, it was unbelievably efficient, right? <laughs> For all the, all the thoughts about communism, what it is, it's efficient. Uh, and if we had an appointment at two o'clock, we walked in the door at five to two 
and we sat down at that person's desk at two o'clock and we were out the door at 2.15. Uh, it was unbelievably efficient. The only thing that went wrong was a form that was signed in the wrong space at the U.S. Embassy. <laughs> so, it was the only thing that went wrong as far as the paperwork was concerned. Um, the, the culture is phenomenal. Uh, the people are amazing, right? Um, many of the people there um, stopped us in the street to thank us, right? If we come walking down the street, it's obvious, you know, kind of we're, we're there, we're adopting. Um, yeah. They know what it is, they know the culture. People stopped to thank us. One gentleman, a principal at a school there, uh, carried our bags in the airport. Complete opposite direction of where his flight was, carried our bags for us as an honor to say thank you um, because he, he knows the, the difference that was gonna, gonna happen for, for Finn, uh, which is unbelievably weird for us because this is our son. We're just going to pick him up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Plus in, in a U.S. airport, if somebody takes your bags, it's a big issue. would <laughs> <laughs> be wrestling, be wrestling on the ground. Um, that was amazing. Of course, there was other people who, who didn't feel the same way, right? They, they felt we're taking uh, a Chinese boy out of China. And, and so you deal with that, right? Um, we all, my two little girls are blondies. So there was uh, others. Uh, it was very fun um, for them, a fun moment, because everybody thought they were Barbie dolls. And they kept saying that and wanting to take their pictures and saying, Barbie doll, Barbie doll. It was very cute. Uh, so we had a good time. It was, you know, but at the, at, at the nature of it, we're all human, right? Um, and we have different governments in place, but it's all people that are being governed. And, and when you get to the heart of it and you get to know the people, they're all very similar. People are people, right? Yeah. yeah. I, I, that's a really important message today, more than ever, with all the division that's going on. You know, at the end of the day, we're all, we're all on the same planet. We're all, people right yeah yeah when it boils down to it i think your experiences with adopting is just shows proves that right Uh, it really does it really does yeah whether it was china or haiti or or people in the united states it's uh their thoughts on it Uh, you know you get people on both sides of the spectrum pro uh pro adoption anti-adoption in in all three countries you know yeah yeah so speak about haiti a little bit that experience i think was probably a little bit different for you than the China experience. Um, while I think it's probably a little more accustomed to see an American in China occasionally, especially with tourism, probably not so much the same in Haiti. Is, is that a good assumption? Do you stick out a little bit more in Haiti? I mean, you're, you're a bigger guy than me, so you just stick out. <laughs> uh, my, my bald dome doesn't help either, but yeah, I, you're probably, you're probably right in that, uh, especially because we, when we were in China, we were in Beijing and we were in Guangzhou, two major cities. When we go to Haiti, uh, where my daughter's orphanage was, is up in the mountains in a very, very rural area. So uh, there was not a lot of white people walking around in there. It was mostly Haitians uh, of Haitian descent that are up there for sure. Um, so we did stick out a little bit more, uh, but again, they kind of know why you're there and, and uh, a little bit different in China, right? You might be there on business in Haiti, you're there. Usually it's either adoption or, or some sort of missionary work, uh, some business, but. Sure, sure. Okay. So let's talk about Sullivan Engineering a little bit. Um, you're, why don't we go back to when you started it? So around 2010, um, and, and I think I just want to frame everybody's mind who's listening for this, uh, to this conversation a little bit. 2010, about two years after, um, obviously the financial crisis, Lehman Brothers, everything. I recollect that that was probably, uh, right when everything started to go bad in the AE industry for the most part, because uh, most firms had some sort of backlog and they could burn through it. And then 2009, 2010 was kind of rough years for, for billing. And you decided to go out and start a business. So um, <laughs> talk about that a little bit. Um, I think you, you have a, an interesting story about how that happened, um, especially with the conversation. And, and I think this is very important for everybody to hear that you went to Mary Jo and said, hey, I want to do this and what that conversation was like and how you were able to even start where you were working out of all those sorts of things. Yeah, great. Um, so 2010, yeah, in, in hindsight, um, was probably, you know, possibly one of the worst times in the last 20 years to start a business was also potentially one of the best. Um, so I, I was working There's at a firm. Yeah. <laughs> always that optimism comes in. Uh, so I was working at a firm that, you know, was good people started by a, a great man. Um, and it, for me, it just when I looked at my future, 
I saw my future as being the founder of a business, of an engineering firm. Uh, I liked the niche we were in. I liked the communication we had back and forth. But when I talked with my wife about it, um, she supported that, that goal. And we talked about when the timing would be right. For us as a family, she said something that, that I'll never forget. Because I said, oh, maybe we'll wait a few more years. But at the time, we had a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and a newborn. And she said, you know, when you start the business, we're likely that we're going to have to eat rice and beans. They're uh, stealing a Dave Ramsey uh, term. Uh, we're going to have to eat rice and beans for a long while. While the kids are four, two, and newborns, they're not going to know any better. Yeah. <laughs> they're fine. It's not like they're used to eating one way and we're going to have to cut them back, right? If we have to skip vacations for a few years, they're not going to know any better. Now is the time to do it. Uh, and she was 100% right. Uh, so we, uh, we started the preparations late 2009, 2010. Uh, we made the jump, and in April uh, 23rd of 2010 is, was my first day, uh, not working for somebody else. Um, and I, I worked at the Wayne Public Library. I know myself that I have too many distractions. During COVID, it's a little bit different. The kids are a little older. They're working from home a lot, but I could not work from home back then. Um, I knew I knew it was going to need to be focused, so I spent about a month and a half working out of the Wayne Public Library until I uh, rented a space, a small office space uh, in Wayne. Uh, and then started to jump from there. Uh, again, I, I you know, have a great deal of admiration for uh, the gentleman I worked for before. So I did not want to take his, his clients. I didn't think that was right. Uh, so I went cold. Uh, so in 2010, we brought in uh, $11,000 in revenue as a business. Um, and what I said before about, um, you know, it's the best time, it was the worst time to start a business, could have been the best time, was doors were opening because people wanted to try to save money. And if they could look at this new upstart engineering firm and maybe bring them in a little bit cheaper, 10% cheaper, 15% cheaper, especially in the residential co-op and condo market, they were willing to take a chance and bring in this engineering firm that maybe, you know, they met, they, maybe they liked me, maybe, maybe they didn't, they just thought it was cheaper, but they could save a little bit of money in that way. And I think that was part of the benefit of starting it in that time. Sure. That door, I had more opportunities present because I looked like a lower cost alternative. I was a lower cost alternative. Um, at that point. And uh, so I think that's what presented some opportunities. Uh, Do you think uh, in, in hindsight, it would have, it was easier because of that opportunity than in a uh, flush market that's highly competitive and everybody's got money and they're not so concerned about the fees? Yeah. Open the door for you? I think so. Uh, I think, you know, when I look back at the opportunities that, that I started, the first few clients that I had, uh, they definitely were price sensitive for sure. Um, and, and that opened some doors. And then I was able to get in and, and prove service. Whereas maybe if, if times were booming and, and they weren't as, uh, hadn't just come over two years of a, a tough economy, three years, depending on what you're looking at, um, that they might have not been as price sensitive uh, and, and it would have made things more difficult. So. So, um, and then 2011, you, you were fully, you know, uh, running on all cylinders, right? That's just how it worked. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no problem. Piece of cake. Well, I almost didn't get, almost didn't get there. Um, you know, again, started in April, 2010 and, and I was cold calling and I, I built our specs from scratch, got our details. I was working on that. I was working on anything I could to keep myself busy, uh, you know, hundred, 110 hours a week literally knocking on doors um, in Jersey City, in Newark, things like that, trying to just introduce myself to people to get work. And uh, it was around October of 2010 where, you know, the insecurities really started to build up. And what, I, I thought it was going to be a lot easier. I'm not going to lie, Chris. I thought it was going to be much easier. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so the insecurities are really starting to creep in and, and uh, it's just getting to me. And uh, I used to try to get home at night, at least to see, you know, the kids before they went to bed, uh, at least two nights a week. So one of those nights I got home, kissed the kids, I went to bed. Uh, I was on, working on the couch uh, when a couple hours later, my wife was getting ready to go to bed. And uh, she looked over at me. She said, what are you doing? And I said, nothing. I'll be up later. And she said, come on, come to bed. I said, no, thanks. I'm good. She said, what are you doing? And as wife's intuition knows, she knew what I was doing. Uh, so I answered her. I said, I'm working on my resume. And she said, no, you're not you're almost there. She came over, she closed the laptop and said, time to go to bed. You're almost there. Um, and, you know, uh, I feel like it was the next day I got my first signed contract, probably was a, a month or so later. Um, but, you know, the, the wheels started turning, but I needed that support. We all do. Yeah. And, and I, she was, she was my rock when I was feeling weak. That's for sure. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. So, I mean, up to that point, you're just burning through savings and rice and beans and, and there's no light at the end of the tunnel, right? There was no light at the end of the tunnel. And, and, it, and it's funny the way it goes, right? Because, you know, we brought in 11,000 in revenue in, in 2010. So that doesn't pay the bills either. It was in February of 2011 was when we took the last withdrawal from our savings. Uh, mm -hmm. There was nothing left. There was nothing left after that. So we had, we went all in. Um, and, you know, I mean, we were blessed. We're in New York City, right? I could have jumped over and gotten a job somewhere else. And my wife was a nurse. We had benefits. We had all that. We had a strong family network, but still, that was the last, uh, the last ten thousand dollars out of our, out of our savings. Uh, yeah. it, it hit right zero. Right, right down to the. It's, it's ironic how that works out. You know, obviously, um, we've all heard of other entrepreneurs right down to that last dime, and then it's like something magically flips, and, and maybe it's the the intensity of the work effort. Maybe it's uh, not that you weren't busting your ass, but just something seems to click. Maybe it's the universe listening to all the, the frequency that you're putting out at that point. But um, it's weird how that works. You know, that story is unfortunately, and maybe, you know, in retrospect, probably a common, all too common story in the world of uh, business. Yeah. And I think in my case, uh, you know, you hit on it, right? So I was doing a lot. I was doing the specs. I was doing the details. I was just, but was I really targeting the clients that I could have gotten the work from? Uh, you know, and, and I will tell you when I'm taking those last $10,000, 95% of my time is targeting clients, trying to bring in work, trying to bring in work. Where in the first couple of weeks, it's like, ah, oh, let me make sure the specs are tight. Let me make sure the drawings are tight. That's easier. Yeah. Counterintention. Uh, you, know. like you, you think you're going yeah. down the right path. You're working in the business, not on the business, but it feels like you're doing something. Yes. Yeah. You felt exactly, that's exactly right. I was doing something, a lot of something. Uh, yeah. But when you get into that last... When you're getting there and you, it says zero in the bank account, you're yeah. working on the right things for sure. Max up against the wall yet. Yeah, now it's game time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, let's talk about, I, I think I mentioned this in the beginning, you know, wanted to uh, talk about your wife. I mean, you brought up two instances here where uh, she, one, backed you in the, out of the gate and two, uh, when you're, you're ready to throw in the towel, she's like, no, you got to keep going. You're almost there. Uh, I mean, talk about, this is something that I think is never talked about, um, is the dynamic between a husband and wife when you're running and starting a business and all the responsibility is on you as the founder um, and what that does to you as a, per, as a person. Um, and then how, how does that, I mean, there's definitely impact, right? It, it's hard as an entrepreneur to come home and turn everything off when you're running a business, trying to grow a business. Um, and then on top of it, you have a family to be a part of. Um, so I think, you know, let's talk about that a little bit, if you don't mind. I, I think, um, you know, here's a shout out to all the husbands and wives that take care of the home side of things that when, when the other half of the relationships out, you know, grinding, um, there's definitely a lot a lot of emotion that happens in that relationship, both the good and bad, probably. But um. yeah, yeah, there's there is a lot there for sure. And um, you know, I think what what's nice is we kind of have that same mindset, that same goal of that bigger picture of what we want to do. And uh, you know, with starting our family, and then with some charitable efforts, we want to get involved with it down the road and kind of where the next phase of our life is. So it's that understanding that, all right, she knows in order to do that, I have to, I had to start the business and pour my heart into it and put a lot of my time into it. And then when I get home, um, try to bring my A game at home, which I failed at miserably many, many times, right? Uh, and in order to do that, then that she had to carry much of the burden at home uh, and the work at home. And, and she had to give up, my, my wife, by the way, was a nurse at Sloan Kettering in pediatrics, right? So she was in pediatric oncology. And there's a part of me that feels guilty that in order to do that, they lost a, just a phenomenal nurse over there to deal with the children that were there. But that was the sacrifice that we chose to make. And I think every couple, regardless if it's entrepreneurial or not, have to choose what's gonna be sacrificed, right? Who's gonna yeah. stay home or you're gonna stay home or you're gonna bring in outside help, what's gonna be the deal? Ours was that we were not gonna bring in outside help. She would stay home, I would do that. And she would carry, uh, much of the burden of running the family, raising the family, 
Um, and, and I would be there as I joke for entertainment value. Um, <laughs> and, and as the years have gone on, I've been able to be more uh, around for the family. The first couple of years, uh, certainly, like I said, uh, I was 110 hours a week at the office and that's not something I take pride in at all. I wish I had gone back and, and done that differently, uh, but the end result is the end result, right? And, and my kids are still young. My oldest is 15. So uh, I now have a lot more time to be able to spend with them and, and do that. But while still seeing that bigger mission of what we want to do as a family. Yeah, yeah, I, I, very similar. My, my wife takes care of the kids and the, takes care of the house. And uh, I have to say the same very, again, probably a common circumstance in the, in the world of running a business. Like it, it's hard to turn it off when you come home. It's also hard to remember that you have to be a husband and a father and all these other things. And I did the same thing. So don't feel too bad. Like it, 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 we're all, we're all uh, human here, but um, it's hard. Like uh, you want to do right for your business because you know, it's going to be able to take care of your family and everybody else. But I think it's very important that in that relationship, you have to Everybody, the, the business owner, the founder typically gets a lot of the credit, right? Like they're the, the big success story, but there's a lot of support um, and probably a lot of tolerance on the family side, right? Um, just to make that all happen. Never a, tremendous, a tremendous amount of tolerance. Um, you know, the, the unique skill set that goes into that is unbelievable, right? The humility not to have to be the, the sign, right? Uh, you know, um, if we go out places, people are like, oh, he started a business. I'm like, well, it wasn't, wasn't for her. This business isn't happening, right? Um, tolerance for when I'm coming home and I'm distracted by something work-related and, um, and just, just taking the rest of that on her shoulders without any sort of acknowledgement um, is tremendous. And uh, I think it's really important that, that both parties uh, in, in the relationship are lockstep in sync. Uh, maybe there's a good bit of naivety going into it. That you know what, if we don't know enough ahead of time, maybe it won't be as scary. But you know, at least the awareness that this is this is what's going to happen. So let's be ready for that um, and make sure we're both on board that the ends um, kind of justifies that. And and you know, the other side is my wife when she needs me, you know, or be better, like I said, I think I'm better now, but I think I am. Uh, back then, when she needed me to be present, you know, was the hey, uh, I'm going to need you here this weekend. You're you're going to be here. You're going to be 100 focused. You, you gotta be gotta be with us on this or, or we need to take a, a long weekend. You need to take a day off. Yeah. You're having a day off in six months. You need, to, you need to take a day off with the family. The kids need you. It's like, okay, yeah. all right. So, you know, there's gotta be that push and pull. Yeah, yeah, well, and, and they're good at knowing when, right? And hey, it's, it's time, you know? So, and, and frankly, it, it's probably a good thing because we never shut it off, right? And yeah, you, yes. Yeah, and you blink and look back and right and, and yeah, missed it, yeah. missed it all. Yep. So um, looking back, so you get through that first year, you start to make some some inroads. Uh, you get into 2011, you have your first hire, right? At that point, and this is really where you start to gain momentum. Uh, right now, you're up to 40. Uh, yes. Yeah, just under 40. And in offices and all the locations that I just mentioned. Um, speak a little bit about your core values. I think it, this is interesting because we've heard a little bit about your personal life, but I think the core values that you have for Sullivan Engineering mirror who you are as a person. Of course, they should as the founder. Like it, I would hope they're similar, but you, you have a set of core values, and it's interesting to watch your firm and the people on your firm. You know, I see posts from your team on LinkedIn and other places. You have a really tight-knit team. And they, they all seem to be very closely aligned with those core values. And I, I'm assuming that's part of the success, right? 100% uh, key to the success of the company is when we started it, you know, as a founder, you're doing the interviews and, and you're really putting a lot of pressure on who you're going to bring into the company. You want really the right people, right? Um, and what's interesting is six out of the first seven that I talk about, people that were with us, right? And, and I made some, some misses early. Uh, where you had people that joined and, and within a month were gone. But the seven that were with us primarily in the early days, six of them are still with the company um, because you're hiring based off of this, you know, uh, intuition, right? You're getting to know the person you're interviewing. You're putting a tremendous amount of pressure on, is this person going to be the right person for my little small business here, my baby that I'm building? Um, and, and so you're hiring people and, and not, I wasn't really putting in, 
you know, what is it about them? I, I like them. I think they're good. I think they got it technically. I think they'd, they'd have this, this work ethic. I think they'd have that. I like them bringing them on, right? Then as we start to grow, there's a little bit less pressure on the hire and you don't have it all buttoned down as far as why you want to hire and things, your, your retention rate is different. Uh, but we started going in 2015, we started using something called the entrepreneurial operating system. And our business coach walked us through the process to identify our core values. And then now we hire, fire, reward, and recognize based off of those values and whether or not people are exhibiting those values. So it's such a, a clear way to get to the heart of whether or not someone shares those values. And, and there's, Chris, as you know, there's a tremendous amount of values out there in the world. If they don't share the six that we identify as core, it doesn't make them bad people. It just means they're, they're not going to be happy on our team uh, and we're not going to be happy with them. So um, we, we find people that share the values and share the purpose of the company, which is to empower others to improve their quality of life. Um, so if they've got that bigger vision on the purpose, which is, it's not just about me, it's not just about my family, it's about empowering others to improve their quality of life. And they share our core values, which are team first, uh, humbly confident, honesty and integrity, entrepreneurial mindset, uh, forward thinking, and empower people. Uh, I knew I was missing one. Um, you know, those six. That's going to look bad. Yeah, I know. I know. Uh, the, so those six core values, if we if they share those core values, it's very easy then. It's not very easy, but it's easier managing people. And, and when things go wrong, kind of pointing to which one of the core values wasn't exhibited and then how we can exhibit that as we move forward. Uh, but, you know, especially when you go through something like COVID um, with a team that shares that purpose and shares those core values, you know, even though we're working remotely, that bond is still tight and, and everybody's still driven towards that vision. Is that part of your interview process? You say, hey, these are our core values and you're, you're having that conversation? It is. Um, and, and we do a three interview uh, process, three-step interview process. So the first one, uh, we, we touch on the core values, we identify with them, we ask people to self-evaluate because uh, it's hard in the interview process to figure out what's the one. Then the second interview is a little more technical. The third interview I do, uh, and it's supposed to be an hour. I did one this morning. It was an hour and a half. Uh, but that's because I talk too much, uh, but it starts out with a half an hour on the core values. And again, asking people to self-evaluate and figure out if they share those core values, because uh, again, it doesn't make them a bad person if they don't, but they're just going to be unhappy here. And, and why should they be right? Yeah, uh, right. So we, we're kind of asking them to opt out if they don't exhibit, if they don't share those core values. Right. Right. I, so let's talk a little bit about, um, COVID. So you have an office in Manhattan, epicenter of COVID, this pandemic. Um, basically, the entire city gets shut down as well as the country, as we all know. But New York took the hit first, right? And you have a, an office there, a team there. But through COVID, I think you added 12 people to your team last year. Is that right? Do I have that accurate? That's so correct. That's you have this big growth during COVID. Um, is this another realistic opportunist type situation or is this like, how did that play out? Because I think a lot of people gave up early on during COVID and you had, you, you know, you, you've maintained this uh, trajectory, you know, on Inc. 5000 for four years in a row now, great places to work four years in a row now, and you added 12 team members. So it's, that's not a common story that uh, we've been hearing through COVID. How, how does how did COVID impact you positively, negative? It sounds like positive here, but there's definitely some silver linings uh, to COVID, and we've we've picked great great team members, as you mentioned. And um, you know, uh, again, I like to communicate. I like to talk. I like to collaborate with our team. So what we did on March 13th, and it's crazy that we're coming up on the one year anniversary of that now, right? Yeah. But on March 13th, that Friday. Um, we asked, uh, we pulled everybody together. Uh, most of the team was in the New York office. The rest we were on Zoom with. Um, and we pulled everybody together and explained the information that we had about COVID and what we were going to do. And we explained to the team that we had built up a four and a half month emergency fund. And we sent everybody out with this mantra that we're gonna go work from home. We're gonna test it out on Monday the 16th to make sure that everything works okay. Because if we have to work from home after that, we wanna make sure it works well. Little did we know, that was the last day we were all in the office together, right? Um, but we sent everybody out with this mantra that if we end up working from home, if New York City gets shut down, we want everybody working, um, not to save your own job, but to save everybody else's job. 
to keep everybody else on the team employed. And if we do that with the four and a half month emergency fund, we can get through, and I use the word little interruption, whatever <laughs> little interruption uh, comes from COVID. Uh, because like so many of us, right, I didn't, I had no idea it was gonna be this long. Uh, but man, Chris, when I tell you, we had two, two team members um, that didn't make the cut, but everybody else, Chris, man, just absolutely crushed it uh, right out of the gates early in, in COVID, March, April, May. Um, you know, 10, 11 hours, and we're trying to dial them down, like just, just dial it down. But what we did, you know, you keep referring to the um, cautiously optimistic, right? Because what we did was we also had our team members having regular conversations with our clients and our contractors. And I was having regular conversations with our, our key clients and our key contractors we deal with to see what they were hearing and what they were seeing. Hmm. And some of the big gut checks where we were hearing all of our clients saying they're moving forward with this work, we're in a niche that um, is compliance driven, right? There's a law that governs what we do and it's restoration. So you kind of have to do it. You may not want to, but you have to do the work. Uh, and the big gut check was a lot of our competitors started laying people off mm. in big numbers, 50%, 40%, 30% of their team laid off. And we were sitting there going, we need people. What's, what's going on? What are we doing wrong here? Yeah. Uh, but we were having those, those conversations internally and then radiating them out to have them externally with our clients and our contractors. And, and the signs were, we're pointing in the positive direction. So then we were able to scoop up, you know, just some rock stars with 20 years experience, 25 years experience that would not otherwise been available if it wasn't for COVID. Um, so we kept our foot on the gas. And again, with that, you know, now people need us more than ever to empower others to improve their quality of life. If we crush this year, we can really make some sizable donations to some organizations that are gonna need it. Uh, and that's ultimately what ended up happening. Yeah, wow. So, I mean, it's it almost a night not that a pandemic's ideal, but in terms of business, uh, you know, just looking at trying to find good people, the, the everybody else shutting down and laying off turned out to be a, a huge win for you. And, and the, well, so we have that forward thinking mindset, right? So we laid out our hundred day plan of what we were gonna do as, as New York City came off a of pause. What are we gonna do for those hundred days? And we laid out plans for, as we go through, when we, if we see this happening, what are we gonna do? And the beauty of that, uh, Chris, was we laid it out with a clear mindset. And then once you got in it and the emotion takes over and the fear of all the news we're hearing from the outside takes over, you don't act that way. You look at what you said you were going to do and you execute and you execute and you execute. And all of a sudden it was like, boom. And we looked back and said, man, if we had to make some of those decisions in the thick of it, um, you know, where if we didn't have that 100 day plan laid out ahead of time, you know, we might have made some different decisions. We might have followed the pack. And uh, I'm certainly glad that we didn't. Yeah, I, you um, talk about planning a lot and you mentioned a business coach. And, and then I also want to talk a little bit about um, you, you have like your annual meeting where you lay out goals. Um, talk, I, I'm sure part of this, like it's just natural, right? You're an engineer, so you plan everything. <laughs> That's part, this is how it works. Like yeah, you're wired, but I mean, talk about like, and I think both on a personal level, but we'll stick with the business here for a second. Having the goals, you have the team on board with the goals, they're aware of it. You get together at your annual meeting, but you, you also have these mini plans and you have somebody that coached you down this path. Do you, I mean, I think part of that brings clarity to where you're going, right? You, you, you're forward thinking in your process during the day, you and your team. How important is that to you guys? I mean, it, you, I'm making fun of you because you're an engineer and that's it, all you do is plan stuff out. But um, do you think you have the success that you're having if it, there's no plan? I, mean, how, how, I guess put another way, how close is your current success and your, your path to the plans you've laid out? Oh, um, so from the plans I laid out initially, we're well beyond what I thought we were going to do. Well beyond. Uh, in that in that Wayne Public Library, I laid out a plan of where we would be in 2040 because uh, I, I love doing that, um, and we'll be there in 2025 or 2026. Um, we're we're on track to be there then. Um, so, but you know, laying out that vision, the first time we did our annual retreat uh, was I think seven years ago now. This was our eighth one we just finished, so that would be seven years ago. Um, and it was me presenting to six people and it was brutally boring. Uh, I presented for seven hours, Chris. Oh um, 
but I spoke about the vision of the company. I spoke about everything on the business, finance, accounting, right, operations. Um, but from that moment on, it was no longer me driving the company. It was everybody sitting in the driver's seat working together. We all knew what was going on. Maybe the better analogy is someone was driving, somebody else was holding the map when we used to use maps, right? And someone else was map picking out the rest stops, right? But it was no longer just me. Uh, and we're nowhere near the growth we had if it was still back to just me and if it was something that was in my head and we were just trying to navigate that way. Uh, what we got was input from everybody, better decisions made throughout um, and you know, uh, getting the, the counsel of everybody in the organization, I think has been phenomenal. We have our leadership team, uh, but man, when we roll certain things out to the entire organization to try to get feedback or, or certain groups, the results are so much more powerful. Yeah, yeah. yeah everybody's rolling in the same direction. Exactly right. Um, so what would you say you're a little over 10 years into this ride. Um, biggest challenge in the last 10 years? Cash flow was a huge problem. Um, we, I, I, I learned the term the hard way, uh, sustainable growth rate. Uh, we outpaced our sustainable growth rate. Um, so as a somewhat quick, somewhat very difficult, uh, we had one of our best years ever and uh, grew tremendously, grew by 42%. And I am an engineer and I hate finance. So, you know, I, I don't want to know anything about it. I just, yeah. I just want to do my, I want to do what we do and I'm going to grow the business. And probably now more than an engineer, I'm an entrepreneur, right? So I want to grow the business. And that's what I was focusing on. And April 10th, I got a call from our accountant um, that we owed a big number in taxes. And we outpaced our sustainable growth rate. So all the money was going into the business all of the cash was in AR. Yeah. We didn't have the cash. And that didn't dawn on me. I mean, I was used to being scrappy and we were making payroll and, and yeah, people sure. knew what we had, uh, but I had enough money to make next two payrolls, but I didn't have the money to pay the taxes. Yeah, yeah. And that's an unbelievably frightening experience to go through. The IRS is actually better than you would think. And yeah. that, uh, they set up a six month payment plan with us and, and we paid it off and we were, we paid it off for five months and we will never go through that again. Yeah. Good. Um, but <laughs> you know, that to me, I think learning that part of it, you, you can't just ignore that side of it, right? You're growing, you're growing, you're growing. You got to look at what's that, what that's doing, what your cash flow cycle is going to be like, um, and what your cash flow is going to look like as you continue to grow. That's been, been difficult for me, you know, bringing in the right people early on, um, finding people is always the biggest challenge. Right, you know, finding the right people, finding good people, making sure they're available. Um, you know, finding them when they're available and bring them on has been a huge challenge. Uh, but I think finding finding the people that um, have the strengths where we currently have weaknesses, and when early in the early days where I had huge weaknesses, now where we have weaknesses, um, it's been it's been a challenge. But we found them, and uh, we're, we continue to look. Well, I think everybody who starts a business has some IRS story. So you're in a good company. I know I had some before early on. Uh, you don't, you know, you think you're doing good. You're, your business is doing well, right? And then there's, oh, we want our pound of flesh too. So that's just how the system works. But um, you learn, everybody learns the hard way with the IRS at least once. <laughs> hopefully just once and yeah. uh you know it was it, the reality was i was putting my head in the sand and ignoring that you know hey you know we're growing and and uh you know we've, we've got bills to pay and and what's going on there so you want to feed the beast right so you're doing well and you, and the the natural instinct is shove it all back in i'm all in on this that's what entrepreneurs do especially somebody who started it right this is your baby i need to feed my baby uh let's roll and but then the, you know, there's the tax side of it, right? So you can't take it all and throw it in there, even though you want to, and you, sh you should be able to feed that system, but it's just part of the planning side of things. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, so we already talked, I was going to ask you the biggest challenge with family, but I think we, we went through that already, the, the work-life balance. I, I don't know if there is one. I think this is an intro, at least my opinion, work-life balance there there is no such thing that one's always out of balance but I, I don't know how you feel about that I'd be interested to hear your take on it I think you know I, I see you on 
I'll, I'll just go to the, your Facebook page for a second. Like yeah, sometimes you're, I see the, the, you with the six kids and then sometimes it's a business thing. Right. So that's just, to me, that's how the world works. But. More and more each day. Right. I, I feel like they're both, there's so much crossover and so much overlap. And then, especially as you own a business, it's hard for the kids. You know, how, how do you keep them at bay? Right. And why yeah. keep them at bay uh, from the business? So there is so much overlap to that. Um, they know just about everybody in the company this year is a little harder, uh, but they know them well. So I think there's, there's, uh, appropriate blend and, and everybody's got to find what that is for themselves. Uh, and then there's appropriate points where you keep them separate. Right. Uh, but the whole notion of a, a work-life balance, I think is different for everybody. And the hard part is lately, it seems like people are trying to make it the same for everybody. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so Four years in a row. I mean, do you feel pressure to hit a fifth year with Inc. 5000? Because I feel it for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it, it's funny. It's one of those, uh, it, it's a strange thing. It's, it's, it's definitely awesome to be on it. And I think it's great for our team to know it, it's a, like an attaboy. And we don't, we certainly, I, I'm terrible at that, giving enough attaboys to our team. Um, yeah. But it is, it's, it's a good feeling. It's a fun to be part of it, but it's also kind of a way when you're competitive, which is, is what our team is made of growth oriented people, you're competitive. Uh, it is kind of nice to see how you're doing against, against other people. So we'll see how it went this year. Well, I, I'm pulling for you, you know, five, <laughs> five times. That's pretty good. So. But it is interesting when you go there and you're, you know, we're happy with our, uh, whatever percentage we had, our triple digit, because they measured over three years, right? As you know, so, you know, there you go. Beautiful. And then, you know, the people that come in first, second, and third are, are the people that make the, uh, the pop socket for the back of the phone and they grew at 70,000%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, we, we can't compete there, but, uh, yeah, playing our sa- playing our sandbox here, we're good. Yeah, 152 percent is good. I I don't think you should should knock that. So, all right, final question for you. Um, what look ahead ten years? I already, I know you already did your 2040 plan, but let's look ahead maybe ten years, twenty years. What is uh, what's the legacy? Maybe you're stepping out of the business 20, 20 years from now, right? Twenty five years, um, and you've grown this to a certain point, you know, what is the legacy of Sullivan engineering? What's the legacy of, of Brian Sullivan that you want to leave in, in your wake? Uh, Sullivan engineering. I think uh, I would love for the legacy of it to be um, a, a team that showed that you can have a distinct set of ethics and values and be great on the technical side and have fun and win. Right. So you can continue to grow and we can make those opportunities available throughout the country for people. Um, you know, that you don't have to be great technically at what you do, but sacrifice your values or great at your values, but sacrifice the technical side. You can have, uh, you can have it all almost, right? Um, yeah. If you're willing to do it. And I think that for me would be a phenomenal legacy for the company. Uh, and the, you know, coming out of that then would be all of the uh, others that we empowered to improve their quality of life. You know, just this, this group, uh, whether it's just a list of charities or people or the stories that went beyond it of, of how we empowered others to improve their quality of life. Um, and then my legacy would be somewhat similar, I guess, but just, um, you know, maybe that, that I inspired somebody to start a business or empowered someone on our team um, in, in a certain way and motivated somebody that if this scrappy uh, dope from Queens uh, could do it and could start a business that at least for the first 10 years uh, was was successful um, and, and hopefully will continue to be successful, that maybe it'll inspire some others to do it. And similarly, they can do it with a set of ethics and values while still being great technically. You don't have to sacrifice it. Uh, and maybe they won't put the 110 hours in in the first two years and they'll, they'll spend a little more family time up front, uh, but still end up with the results. I think that's some solid advice. So... So thank you. I appreciate your time. Uh, where can everybody check you out? I think you got you guys do a great job with your LinkedIn page. So that's Sullivan Engineering on LinkedIn. Uh, website SullivanEngineeringLLC.com, if I remember correctly. Very good. There's a lot of Sullivans in the engineering field, apparently. So we had to add the LLC at the end. Those are, those are the two best spots. Yeah, uh, or LinkedIn, uh, Brian Sullivan, um, 
there's a lot of Brian Sullivan's out there as well. But if you type in Brian Sullivan, Sullivan Engineering, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm on Facebook as well. Or of course, um, just reach out through or contact us on the uh, Sullivan Engineering website. Great. Awesome. Great. Well, thank you. I appreciate thank you, it. Chris. I really pre I appreciate the opportunity. Great job with what you're doing with Antidote One and, and with this podcast. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Chris.